We have been teaching from Ephesians 2 and 6 that we should elevate our lives, that that's God's promise. And what I've pointed out to you is that so many times, and we've experienced this, haven't we? That God can release something in the heavenlies and it not yet be manifest in our lives. For example, we're called the righteousness of God, but how many of you at times don't feel too righteous? Especially after you give somebody a piece of your mind, you know, for cutting you off in traffic. You know? But God said we're the righteousness of God. That's what His Word said. So theologically that is correct, but positionally it hasn't necessarily manifest itself as of yet. Ephesians 2 and 6 said, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Seated with Him literally means ruling with Him. Sometimes you don't feel like you're ruling. But there's an incredible amount of authority that's actually in that verse. The promise of it is there. I've been teaching on 12 dimensions of authority. Because unlike what many people think, there's not just spiritual authority. You either have it or you don't. There are different levels of it, like climbing that set of stairs or this one to get up in the balcony. You've got to go through these different steps, and you have authority here and here and here and over different things. We always want to jump to the top, and usually people want authority over finances or demonic spirits or, you know. And you've got to work your way up to that level by gaining authority over other things first. And so I'm teaching on the 12 dimensions. I've been through three of them. Authority over self, authority within a family structure, and authority within secular affairs. Today I want to talk to you about authority within a ministry structure. Now most of us have been incorrectly taught and made to believe that it's about position. When we say authority in a ministry structure, means I'm, it's my position. Jesus indicated that you have an enemy. Luke 9 verse 1, he called the twelve together. And who were the twelve? Some of the most flawed men you've ever met in your life. Fishermen, tax collectors, shepherds. These guys, they were far from noble. They, they were flawed individuals. But he elevated them and made them to become the pillars of the church. And he said, I'm giving you power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Why did they need power and authority when he elevated them, clearly, demonic forces were going to oppose their elevation and the work of the kingdom they had been commissioned to do. This, in my mind, tells me that for us to do what God's called us to do, that we're going to face opposition as well when he elevates us. So just like they needed power and authority, you need power and authority. We have power. We receive that when we receive the Holy Spirit. Authority is the right to exercise spiritual power. That's based on maturity, and some of us don't have that yet. That is authority. So I'll pray. Father, speak a word to us today. Help us to understand what you would have us to, to know, that your kingdom can be established in the earth and through us. Make this church powerful and strong. Give us an encounter with truth that will be eye-opening, awakening, and empowering enough that we will be able to fulfill the destinies that you have appointed to each of us and to this church as a corporate entity. 
I ask in Jesus' name. Everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. All right. Amen. Again, it's a mistake to believe that, that authority is, is about a position or a title. The boss had a meeting, staff meeting, complained, nobody around here respects me. You have to respect me. Bless God, I'm the boss. He worked himself up to such a state that after that staff meeting, he went down to the local sign shop and he bought a small sign that said, I'm the boss, and hung it on his door on the outside of his office. Then he went to lunch. When he came back, somebody had taped a little note that said, your wife called and wants her sign back. Amen. Just can't get any respect. Spiritual authority is significant because 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, that's what Jesus was giving his disciples authority over because there was, and the reason was, is they had an adversary that would oppose that. He walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Didn't say whom he can devour. Can has to do with the ability that a person has, may has to do with permission they've been granted. Peter said, and any number of educators can tell you this that are in this room today, Peter said the devil doesn't have permission, he does have the ability, but he doesn't have permission, he's seeking it. Who gives him that permission? I can tell you straight up, your heavenly father never will. He will never give the enemy permission to destroy your life. You know who gives him permission to do that? We do. By not exercising our spiritual authority. Now, let me flip that around and say that's very positive when viewed from this perspective. It means that if he has to have permission and you don't give it, he can't touch you. You do not have to give the enemy permission. To wreck your home or your life or your marriage or your finances or your health. So we're looking at the fourth dimension of spiritual authority. We've covered the first three. To be able to correctly assess a problem, diagnose it, and address it and fix it is oftentimes fundamentally disturbing. To begin with, just to be honest with you, I can see what's wrong with you more easily than I can see what's wrong with me. We're all that way. Come on. Jesus talked about getting the, the speck of dust out of, your, out of your neighbor's eye. That's what you're setting out to do. He said, look, I got a better solution. Why don't you get rid of the telephone pole that's in yours first? <laughs> Amen. We can see somebody else's problem more quickly than we see our own. And once we see it, to fix it requires a Horribly nasty six-letter word called change, which most of us do not like. That can be painful and annoying to have to address these issues. Speaking of annoying, good Catholic joke. Don't anybody get offended. Good Catholic joke. Jesus goes to a village, and as he's entering the village, he comes upon a group of people that are angrily picking up stones, and a young woman laying on the ground. They're about to stone her to death. And he runs over and puts his arms out and says, wait, 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 don't. Don't do this. And he said, let those of you without sin cast the first stone. And they all were shocked and put their hands down and voices got quiet and they're about to drop their stones. When from outside the group, 
on the back, an elderly woman picks up a, a stone and throws it and hits the lady. And they all become encouraged. Yeah! They pick up their stones again and start throwing them. Jesus jumps in front of the stone and says, wait, 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 stop. He looks back at the elder lady in the back and he said, you know, mother, you really annoy me sometimes. <laughs> That's cute. You got to admit that. Amen. <laughs> to fix things. Go ask a Catholic friend. They'll explain it to you. Amen. Jesus demonstrated incredible authority within a ministry structure. Not separate and apart from it, but within it. He did this when he platted the whip and went into the temple and began to throw over the, the tables of those who changed money and drive them out of the temple. Now, this was at a time when they were having a religious festival. There were thousands of people there. People have for years mistakenly believed that what Jesus was doing was preaching against any commerce connected with the church at all. That wasn't what he was doing. He wasn't demonstrating against commerce. When you stop and you look at it, actually selling animals at the temple was a very effective way to make sure that sacrifices were of the best quality. Israel was required to come from wherever they were around the world three times a year to worship in Jerusalem. The other 49 Sabbaths, they were to worship in the synagogues near their home. But three times a year, they had to go to Jerusalem. And they had to bring with them lambs or young calves, bullocks, that were pure and without spot. If you lived outside of Israel and your journey required you to travel hundreds of miles, the best animal you had by the time you got there there was no Interstate 10, remember? No I-59 or 45. They didn't have a beltway. There were no Boeing 747s. They had to walk. By the time they got this prized animal to where they were going, it was pretty bedraggled. It was in bad shape. It wasn't even worth being used as a sacrifice. So what they did is made a provision where you could go to the temple Take the money you brought and you could buy an animal that was suitable for sacrifice. That wasn't the problem. What Jesus was upset about was that they were charging five times as much for what they were paying for as the actual market value of that animal was. Remember when he chased them out, what he said? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it what? A den of he was upset because they were saying, let's go to church to make money instead of let's go to church to give the best we've got to God. Instead of let's go there and offer our best offering, they were saying, boy, let's go rook those pilgrims, those strangers, those visitors in town. And Jesus, within a ministry structure, began to reform it. And he demonstrated the significance then of the church in doing so. It is important for us to understand that if properly focused, ministry structures can be much more effective and impacting and accomplish much more than can single individuals operating alone and on their own. This is because of the synergistic effect of believers embracing the same vision and committing themselves fully to the same cause. Deuteronomy 32 and 30 says, one shall put to flight a thousand. 
But if that's the case, two working together, the synergistic effect of multiplication means that two can now put to flight 10,000. These same two operating alone, if one puts to flight 1,000, the other puts to flight 1,000, that's only 2,000, there is a 500% increase in the effectiveness of a ministry structure when people work together. That's carried to even another degree exponentially if three join that group. Because following the same mathematical progression, one a thousand, two ten thousand, three will put to flight a hundred thousand. When you follow this, it is mind-boggling what people can do that work together. But in Jesus' day, the church was not perfect. Matthew 7, verse 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished preaching or saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And this is what they said. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. All it took to bring a religious awakening or revival was the church. Someone, one person in the church functioning in the spiritual authority that a ministry structure was supposed to have in the first place. He didn't throw away the structure, but functioning within the structure, it created such a clear and compelling case that everybody that had been fed up with teachers who had no authority suddenly said, wow, look at this. And an awakening broke loose. Most, watch this now, most religious structures begin the right way. They begin with someone or a few someones having an encounter with God. Martin Luther started the Lutheran church because of an encounter with God. John and Charles Wesley started the Methodist church because they had encounters with God. Similarly, the Pentecostal movement began, whether it's the Assembly of God, whichever part of the branch of it it may be, began because Charles Pornham in Topeka, Kansas had an encounter with God. And then William Seymour at Azusa Street in Los Angeles of the same similar kind of background had an encounter with God. And what happens is, because every person is born with an innate hunger to know God that is more fundamental and real than is your need to be sustained by food and water. When you meet someone that's had a God encounter, something inside of you cries out and says, I want that too. It was Pascal, the French philosopher, who said that within every person, God creates an emptiness, a hole shaped like God that nothing but God can feel. I'm paraphrasing. That's really the way it is. And when you meet somebody that's had this encounter with God, something starts vibrating within you and, and you realize, that's what I've really been hungry for. All the other stuff didn't satisfy it. That's what I really want. And so people gravitate to them seeking that encounter with God. Denominations are formed out of that. Churches are formed out of that. Movements are formed out of that. Traditionally, what has happened over time, and this is borne out historically if you've ever studied church history, is that after these encounters with God and people come together, after a while of seeking God, worshiping God, somebody happens to notice the other side of the street, and they say, one of our requirements, and one of the things we're supposed to be doing as a believer that truly knows God is impacting our world, let's go help the prostitute, the drug addict, the down and out, the up and out. 
let's reform society. So they implement programs. And these programs are for a while run concurrent with people who are passionate about God. They run together. You have people who are hungering for God, who've had a God encounter, now running programs to change the world. And then what happens over time, those who had an encounter with God begin to die off. Or their passion or their fervor is diminished. Usually it's just that they're passing on. And what happens is the next generation or two or three doesn't have the same encounter, but they embrace the programs, and the programs are now being pursued without the passion for God that caused them to be started to begin with. What happens as a result of that is the, the programs themselves, while good are not the solution, what man really was looking for was God. And because the church has lost its passion for God and its spiritual authority, it's now running programs that are no different from anybody else's programs, and they cease to be as effective as they once were. And what takes place in a community or a society is they lose respect for the church. And if you don't mind me being very candid and frank with you, this is where the church in the world is at right now. The church has had encounters with God. God started the right way. And church after church, denomination after denomination, has done all that I've just mentioned. Starting hospitals that still are well known. But go to their churches and they're empty. And they have lost the power of a spiritual voice. They no longer have spiritual authority. The programs are still going on. But they're not changing society anymore. And what Jesus did is stepped into the middle of all of this. And instead of throwing the structure away, said, let's reform it. And so he called on the nation and upon man to repent. You were meant to have authority as a believer. And I want to settle that right now. You were meant when you prayed to move heaven. You were. The enemy was supposed to fear you when you stepped into a place. He's supposed to be afraid of you. When you worship, angels are supposed to stand up at attention. When you touch God, it's supposed to set in motion things in the heavenly places. It's supposed to happen. Amen. You were meant and created for that purpose. But as in Jesus' day, the world has heard enough teaching from those who know the word but don't have any authority. He taught differently than they've had ever heard anybody taught. That's the problem then with religious systems today. Before we can move on to such things as authority over finances and authority over demonic structures, we've got to get our own house in order. Amen. Paul warned that in the last days, this would be a phenomenon that would occur. That the church would lose its spiritual authority. Listen to what he said, 2 Timothy 3, 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power. It's power. He said, have nothing to do with such people. Woo. That's pretty plain. What we do is we implement programs and dramas and choirs and good sermons and all of this other stuff. Outreach programs to the community. And I'm not knocking that because we got it all here. But if it's done without spiritual authority, it's no longer effectively transforming a community. And Paul was saying that even in his day, 
They were having a problem like that in the church, Galatians 2.6. He had to go to Jerusalem for the council, and he met the boys with all of the titles and the, the nameplates on their door and the corner offices. And this is what he said. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. <laughs> what exactly do you mean by that, Paul? I think it was pretty plain what he meant. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Paul is saying, I've seen those with a title, but they didn't have the authority that was necessary. Amen. And this is what you need to understand, that we have come to that same place. Now, it's an important side note, but it is important, and therefore I'm going to make this point and spend a few minutes here. Paul's experience indicated that even in his day, the church was not perfect. Hello, come on, somebody help me out here. Some people incorrectly look at the flaws of the church and reject the church altogether. That's not the right solution. And we all know people that have done that. Throw the church away. Denigrate the church. Talk bad about the church. You better not do that. I don't need the church. Well, then you know more than God. Because guess what? The church wasn't started by man. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not overcome it. So if you don't think it's necessary, obviously you know more than God because he felt it was necessary. Not only that, the church is his body. So when you despise his church, you're despising him. Because my body and me are the same thing. And yours is too. Amen. Matthew, or rather Ephesians 1. You want to read some good reading on why the church is vital? Read the book of Ephesians. Verse, Ephesians 1, 22-23. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who feels everything in every way. So you can't say the church isn't necessary because Jesus is the one who established it. Nor can you say that you don't respect the church because you're disrespecting his body when you do that. Thirdly, Ephesians 5 said his church is his bride. I'm going to be real careful with what I say because my bride's sitting right over there. So, honey, let me just preach here and don't get mad at me. It's preacher talk. I love you, baby. You know, you're my boo and all of that, you know. Amen. I will have been married to her 46 years in June. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. But in the 46 years that I've been married with her, I figured out, do I want to say this or not? Y'all going to pray for me? As wonderful, I know how it is, as wonderful as she is, she's not perfect. Now, I can say that. And I can even talk to her about it. But don't you. You got my point? That's my bride. And the church is his bride. And you be careful what you say about another man's wife. 
And not only that, not only did Jesus start it, not only is it his body and his bride, we need it for perfection. Ephesians 4, 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You need me and I need you, whether you admit it or not, you need the church. Come on, somebody in the building, say amen. As imperfect as it is, I'm talking about the the importance of a ministry structure that has spiritual authority. This is what Hebrews said in 10 and 25. Some people give up on the church. I'm not going to marry perfect people there. Uh, you're right. There are. If you ever find a perfect church, guess what? They're not going to let you go to it because <laughs> you're not perfect. And if you, join an imperfect, if you join a perfect church, it won't be perfect anymore once you join. <laughs> Amen. I'm serious. All these folk looking for perfect churches. When you find it, they're not even going to let you in the house. They're going to stand at the door and say, uh, usher's going to ush and say, you can't come in here. Amen. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Hebrews 10 and 25 said, not giving up meeting together as some are in the what habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Whoa. Notice the word day is capitalized. The day. It's talking about the end of times. What Paul, or the writer here, many believe it's Paul, others Apollos, some Timothy, whoever the author was, he's saying, don't quit going to church. Especially if you see that we're nearing the end of days. You need to go to church more, not less. I'm setting the construct here, establishing how we're going to deal with this whole thing of spiritual authority within a ministry structure. The importance of corporate worship is clearly seen in the Old Testament examples that are types of God's church. Israel was a type of God's church. Calls it that in the book of Acts, the church in the wilderness. Came out of Egypt, type of the world, from Pharaoh, type of the enemy. Led by Moses, type of Christ. They were baptized, 1 Corinthians 10, under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Spirit, water, baptism. Yet, when they got into the promised land, this is what the commandment was. You are three times a year to drop what you're doing and go to Jerusalem and worship there. You don't get to vote on it. Not only that, the other 49 Sabbath, you're supposed to you're supposed to worship in the local synagogues. And you know how long those, those trips that were that were, were, were required three times a year? You were required sometimes to be there seven days. And that was back in the times when people were forming. And God said, you leave everything, I'll take care of your forms, your homes, your livestock, everything. You just go to church. That's heavy duty. That shows the importance of regular attendance. While I'm on this point, somebody say, yeah, but we messed up because we're not worshiping on Saturday. There's a reason for that. In those days, they only went to church one day a week. You know why? Because every day, cows need to be fed and milked. I was raised on form. Anybody else here raised on form? 
Chickens need to be fed. Hogs need to be slopped. Except on a Jewish farm where they didn't have hogs. But if you are ever raised on a farm, you work from sunrise till sundown. The only day God said you can get off is the one day I'll take care of it for you. And that's a Sabbath day. The New Testament is different in this regard. The Sabbath day was the seventh day of the week, Saturday. Why do we worship on Sunday, which is the first day of the week? Because in the New Testament, Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. So they got together every Sunday to celebrate his resurrection. And this is what they said. In the Old Testament, they worshiped one day out of seven. We who have his spirit living within us have him seven days out of seven. So we're going to worship every day. That's literally what they did. We're going to worship every day, and we're going to choose to organize our meetings on the day that he was resurrected. Now, what happened is along during Israel's history, you know what they did? They stopped valuing the church, and they stopped attending and worshiping. The result was that they fell into apostasy, disregarded those annual meetings that were required three times a year and stopped worshiping in the local synagogues and God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and they were invaded by the army of Babylon and overrun and they were carried away captive those of them who did not who were not killed the city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground the temple was destroyed God said you don't want to go to church okay I won't even let you have one Take it away from you. They burned it to the ground, carried them into captivity. The prophet Daniel said, you will be there 70 years. At the end of 70 years, Daniel read the story, the scroll of, of Jeremiah the prophet and realized, oh, wait a minute. 70 years is over right now. Got on his knees and began to intercede and prayed, God, send us back to our homeland. And in response to his prayer and the prophet Jeremiah's prophecy, God calls two different groups of people to immigrate from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem. The first led by, well, they were led by Ezra and Nehemiah, two different guys, two different groups. One rebuilt the temple, helped to Zerubbabel. It was called Zerubbabel's temple, actually in charge, and rebuilt the city. And the other, Nehemiah, built the wall. And you know what they did when they got back home and they got that task completed? This is what they said in Ezra 10 and 8. They said, we're not doing this anymore. We're not going to allow ourselves to, be, to fall into apostasy. And they said, everybody here, you show up within three days. And you better come because we're making a commitment to honor God and be in, 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 in his house three times a year like he said. And every Sabbath in the local synagogue just like he required. And this is what Ezra 10 and verse 8 says. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. If you were in ancient Israel and you didn't go to church regularly, they excommunicated you and you became a stranger in the land that no longer was a recipient of the promises of God through Abraham. They didn't count you any longer as a part of Israel. And this is what they were doing in the book of Ezra. They said, we're going back to the old way. We messed up. Now, if you don't go to church, your property is going to be taken from you. You're going to be banished from among the people of God. Whoa! That's a pretty heavy penalty for not going to church on Sunday. You say, does God still do that anymore? 
Well, let's ask ourselves and see. Why has the church been so affected by the economic crisis in America and the church in other parts of the world? Could it be that the reason we're not experiencing divine provision in the middle of the storm like Israel did in the land of Goshen when the plagues came against Egypt is because we have not honored his church. And the result is our funds have been taken away. Our properties have been lost. Our jobs have been forfeited. Whoa. All of a sudden you realize this thing about church is serious business. Why? Because of the synergistic effect. One puts to flight a thousand, two ten thousand, three hundred thousand, four a million. It just keeps going. But when people don't realize that and they don't value the church, then the church loses spiritual authority in reverse measure to the way it gains it when we work together. What happens is in the absence then of true spiritual authority, we begin to implement systems of our own. Yes, we do. This is what I'll talk about next Sunday that I've never preached from this pulpit before, though I have addressed it elsewhere around the world. You know what we start doing? We lead with a Jezebel spirit. And an Ahab spirit. And what is a Jezebel spirit? It's a controlling, manipulating spirit that you got to do what I say because I'm the boss around here. And it's a form of witchcraft. I will reject you if you don't measure up. The spirit of Ahab is an enabling spirit. You never find one by themselves. They always work together. Hmm. Next week, we'll give you some of the characteristics. And so it becomes about titles then, right? Titles, positions. Uh-huh. Because real authority is gone. And now then, okay, you can't make a demon do anything. Come out of him. You come out of yourself. Amen. I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you right back. What you going to say about that? When the church loses spiritual authority, you hear what I'm saying? Then it's you better do what I do because what I said do because I'm the boss. And that's when somebody puts a little note on the bottom of your sign and said your wife wants her sign back. You hear what I'm saying? And the church loses respect in a community. Or it's still carrying on programs and it's got choirs and it's got good sermons and it's got good music and it's got drama and it's got outreach programs but it has no authority anymore to change a community. And the church loses respect and governments no longer value the church or its input. Hello, I'm preaching right now. Amen. God is wanting to restore his church to genuine spiritual authority again. Amen. In Matthew 8, there were two reasons the Roman centurion received such an incredible miracle. He came to Jesus and said, Lord, my servant is at home sick. And Jesus, being the incredibly insightful teacher that he was, is already positioning this story now to set it up to make a point. He knows what the man is going to do because he's omniscient, he's God in flesh. And he tells the man, the man has not asked, but Jesus tells him, I'll go home with you and heal your servant. And the man said, oh, no, no, that's not what I came here to do. And Jesus winks. I knew that. 
Amen. I'm making a point here. Amen. And the man said, just say the word. And Jesus said, I haven't seen this kind of, of faith in all of Israel. There were two reasons that man received a miracle. The man said, speak the word only, and my servant will be, be healed. Just send the word. You don't even have to go. Send the word. Speak the, ooh. Mm. Amen. Why is it sometimes in the church we can say the word and nothing happens? Watch it now. The second reason, or the first reason rather, is because the man recognized the kingdom of God functions based upon spiritual authority. Jesus, you got it. <laughs> I stood back there in the crowd and I heard you teach, and I've never heard anybody teach with authority like that before. You got it. Just send the word. Amen. Speak the word and my servant will be healed. The first thing the man saw was he discerned that the kingdom functions upon spiritual authority. The entire spirit dimension responds to spiritual authority. Second reason that he received a miracle was because he knew his place within the spiritual authority framework of the kingdom and was submitted to the authorities that were over him. And that's when he said, I am a man under authority. Speak the word, because all I do is say to this man, go, and he goes. And the reason I can tell him go, and he's got to go, is because some, someone over me tells me to go, I go too. Amen. Oh, Lord. Somebody help me out here right now. These two things today will still result in breakthroughs. If we can discern that the kingdom functions on the basis of spiritual authority and submission to it, and if we can be under authority, submitted to authority ourselves, the result is the synergistic effort that I'm talking about of multiplied authority that results. What happens, though, is that it's supposed to flow out of voluntary submission. When there is no authority within a church, we very quickly do what they did after they stole the, the, the shields of gold that Solomon made and put in the temple. We substitute shields of brass. I know I am. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Amen. What happens is we set up structures so we can continue to do business as usual. Hello. The authority is gone and we now have all of these wounded people that need recognition vying for attention and saying, I'm the big boss around here. I've got a position and the Jezebel spirit knows how to work in such a way that they can win you over Oh, but wait till they get on top. That's when Heckel becomes, Jekyll becomes Hyde. Which one was it? That's when, oh boy. You know? That's when you find out what's really behind them. And this is what Paul was, was dealing with in his day. People that had titles but he said they didn't really have authority. What's the solution? Trash the church? No. Bring it to reform by rediscovering real spiritual authority. 
Because when the real authority walks in, just like when Jesus was in the temple and the people said, this man preaches with authority. He's not like the rest of those that have been teaching. One person operating in spiritual authority that is genuine unmasked the whole charade. Amen. Spiritual authority grows in part out of being correctly aligned with God and his church and then being in submission to the authority within these structures. What we have is we have situations where people want to be the boss. I'm talking about in church world, not here at CT, but in the church world (laughs) in general. You respect me because I am the boss. Boss. I'm the biggest boss that you've seen thus far, you know. And it's all about trying to impress folk because somebody's so wounded on the inside that they need to feel good about themselves by telling somebody else what to do. At no level is this allowed to exist within the church of the living God. There are even qualifications for those who are in leadership, they have to measure standards where they will measure up to certain standards where they will never be permitted to utilize that kind of coercive leadership. Amen. Here's a verse that's going to make everybody tremble in fear. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who have the rule over you. Oh, I hate that verse right there. Everybody's thinking the same thing right now. You know, oh, here we go. I thought it was a good church. Now, I had to pull that one out of the Bible, you know. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. That's all I can say, you know. You know? No, this is what I want to show you in that verse. The word rule there means two things. It means, first of all, to get out in front of and lead by example. Look at it in the Greek. That is literally what it means. The second thing it means is to make a ruling on a matter that is not clear. In the course of living for God, there will be any number of situations you will encounter that are not really clear. For example, you will not find anywhere in Scripture where it says, Thou shalt not drink Jack Daniels. I'm just making sure you're still here. You look like you are, but I want to make sure you haven't checked out yet. Now, you will find verses against drunkenness. Oh, but I don't get drunk. I just get a little high. You won't find any scriptures, thou shalt not smoke marijuana. But somebody has to make a decision. Not one person Groups of leaders coming together who have been submitted to themselves have to get together and assess things. Paul says, you don't even get to be a leader in the church unless you're using these two principles of rule within your own home. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 3 verses 1, 4, and 5. Faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. He must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Amen. What does that mean? Let me break it down to you. Okay, I'm going to spell it out. 
Amen. You don't even get to be a leader in the church unless it's the same word, by the way, used here for rule. Same word that's the one that was used in Hebrews. Unless you get out in front and lead your family by example. Second meaning is also there. That you're going to have to make some decisions about some things that are not clear on. But you have to be such a good example that even when you've made those decisions, your family submits with all reverence. What does that mean? They see that you are motivated by so much love for them, they don't feel challenged and they willingly submit themselves to your leadership, even though it's an issue that is not clearly spelled out. And if you have ever raised children, trust me, and when I tell you, there are some issues that are not clearly spelled out. Come on, help me out here. Mom and dad, don't you go quiet on me right now. Amen. Like the 16-year-old boy went to his dad and said, Dad, I want to drive. I want to learn how to drive. Boy, the dad said, son, when you cut your hair, you can learn to drive. But I don't see any need to cut my hair. I like my hair this long. When you cut your hair. Well, why? Because I'm the head of the house, son, and I, I lead by example. And I believe it'd be better if you kind of trimmed it up a little bit. And the boy said, well, Jesus didn't cut his hair. man said he walked everywhere he went too. Want the keys? Y'all understand my point? You're going to have to make some decisions in life that are not always careful, that clearly spelled out. I would say this about that. If things are not clearly spelled out, two things. Seek the counsel of those you respect. The second thing is, don't just choose anybody to listen to. A good practice is to seek more the counsel of more than one person on a matter that's not clear. That's what I do. If I have something I have a question about, I'll, I'll go to several of my friends. What's your best input on this? I've run, run things by Donnie. I ran some things by him this morning. Pastor Joe, we'll talk about issues because I need input. But I tell you what you should never do. Don't make your decisions in isolation and alone. Or don't choose somebody that can't help you. And like I've said before, if you need financial advice, don't go to Uncle Joe that's borrowing money from you every Monday. And he's been bankrupt 14 times already. Don't ask him for advice on which stocks to invest in. Choose your advisors carefully on the basis of their ability to advise with wisdom. And Paul said, you don't even get to be a leader in the church. Unless you can lead your own home. Then he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well. Same word again. I'm done. Here's the key to all of this. When it said back to Hebrews 13, when it said submit, obey them that have the rule over you, and be submissive. You know where the word, where submission comes from? It's your decision, not the leader. This, is, this verse will either be the worst verse you've ever had. Put it back on Hebrews 13 and 17, if you would, please. Yes. Now, watch this. That verse is either one of the worst verses in your Bible or it's one of the best. 
it's the worst if you are one of those that think like, I got a position, you got to do what I said because I said it. That's not what that says. What that says is I get to choose whether I'm going to submit to you. I make a decision. Real submission is when I choose to, do, to kneel in submission. When I choose to give myself. That's why that song was so impacting a while ago. I give myself away. If somebody takes that from you, that's not the same as you giving it. Amen. Real submission is a voluntary surrender. And so the Jezebel spirit says, you better do it because I got the position here. And I need you to do it so I can feel good about myself. In conclusion, there are three areas where we're meant to have authority. With God, with man, and with the devil. In Genesis 32, there's this incredible story of Jacob wrestling with a theophany. I've explained before that in the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet been born, so God did not have an earthly body. So anytime God appeared to man in the Old Testament, he appeared in different manifestations and forms. Melchizedek, the captain that met Joshua, that was the captain of the Lord's host. Numbers of times he appeared as an angel. He did to, for example, Manoah, who was the father of Samson. And in this passage, he appears as an angel and wrestles with Jacob. And for Jacob, it's all about strength. <clears throat> I'm going to wrestle with the angel. This angel is a theophanic representation of God. Because a few verses later, we find out it isn't even an angel, that it was the Lord. That's what it's called. It's what it, 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 he was called, the Lord. The Lord spoke to Jacob and said, Jacob, as a prince, you have power with God and with man, and you have prevailed. Notice that, power with God and with man. One is vertical, that's God. Other is horizontal. If you lose this one, you won't have this one. This one comes first. Amen. You say, what about the devil? Yeah, but watch it. The word translated power when it said as a prince you have power with God and man. Look it up in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word literally means not physical strength, but it means the power inherent in your position as a prince. Now, what was a prince? A prince was the son of a king. I conclude by telling you today that the reason the church is supposed to have spiritual authority is because we are the sons of the king. It wasn't that the prince is any stronger than any of the men next to him. Their strength might even be superior to him or to his. The difference is he has authority and they don't. And what we need in the world today is genuine spiritual authority where we as the church can speak to God, move God, impact the world around us. You, said, you say, I thought you said three things, God, man, and the devil. I did. But when you get this one right and this one right, the boy down there don't have any choice left. He's got to move whenever you say to go. And that's just the way that it is. And if you're trying to tell him what to do without getting this one right, and without this one being right, he's not going to listen. But when you get this one, the vertical one correct, and that results in the horizontal one, and you have authority there, when you speak to him, he has no choice but to cease and desist. 
So I conclude by, by, where I start, by going back to where I started today. Satan is a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may. Satan is a roaring lion, goes about seeking to destroy those who will give him permission. Those of you who don't want to give him permission, stand with me right now. Prayer counselors, come. I think we're getting ready to have a visitation of the Lord for a few minutes here in this altar right now. I want those who would like to see spiritual authority manifest in their life to come and pray with me right now. Come. And I'm hoping that will be the whole congregation. Because you were meant to move heaven. You were meant to say to a community, I'm bringing deliverance to this place and it come. You were meant to pray for people that were sick and they would be healed. Mark 16 said, these signs shall follow them that believe. Come, move in close because there's so many folk coming behind you. Amen. You were meant to have authority with God. When you worship, When you worship, are you listening? God ought to be telling angels, shh, 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 shh. Hear that? When you pray, it ought to release something in the heavenlies. I am seeking God. I hope you'll join with me, but I'm really seeking God right now. I want to see miracles happen. Oh, I've seen them happen overseas. And we have a few every now and then at home. We had a Sunday night two or three weeks ago. Wonderful Sunday night. Many of you were there. Bottom floor completely full. Just a Sunday night miracle and prayer service. I want to start having those at least once a quarter. That may end up growing into a regular Sunday night service. I don't know. Amen. For those who want an encounter with God. I want to see cancers fall off people's bodies. I want to see blind eyes be open. I'm tired of seeing people that are my brothers and sisters die because the church doesn't have the authority to speak healing over them. I, I'm going to say something, and, and Connie, please don't. Please, Connie, don't be upset if I mention Patrick. I love Patrick, God. It's his wife, Connie, I'm talking about. I appealed to a moment ago. He's in the veterans' hospital, and he has a little thing they told me, a computer that he has to, you know, just kind of, I guess, blow into or something because he can't write. And he sends me an email every now and then. And I am so encouraged when I get his emails because he's not mentioning one thing about how bad he's feeling or hurting. Or just, I remember when Patrick died. How tall is Patrick? 6'3", big, strong guy. I remember when Patrick was a, the picture of health and now he's got, uh, I think it's Lou Gehrig's disease that they called that. Lou Gehrig's. Yeah. 
I, I don't want to see Patrick stay in that hospital. I want to be able to pray for people, and I want you to be able to pray for people and then get healed. Amen. God, do it again. God, do it again. Do it again, God. Do it again, God. Do it again. Do it again. God, send revival. Demonstrate your power. I want to be able to say to people that are in drugs, addicted, alcohol, Mike, you know what it's about, buddy. Mike, how many years did you live as an alcoholic, Mike? You told me. 40 years as an alcoholic, and God set him free, and now he heads up the ministry here. Look. We have blamed people that we should have been having sympathy for. They were in bondage. And we've said, you're not serious or you'd quit. No, they'd quit if they, were, if they could. There's something holding on to them. I want to be able to say to people that are broken and helpless, the church is still your answer. Amen. Come on. Hallelujah. You know what I long for? And I'm closing. I really am. I long for the day when instead of the government making laws that make the church look stupid, that what they'll say is to people who are broken, why don't you go to the church? They can help you. We can't. Would you lift your hands, Father? Restore our authority. Restore our authority in the name of Jesus.